Welcome everyone to our seminar on aviation post-COVID-19. This is Frank Dowling, the moderator from DMS, and we are very pleased to be hosting this event, where we are looking fundamentally at the deep-rooted issues affecting the aviation and ultimately the aviation finance sector. Given that we now have the crisis for around four months, and globally for three months, it is an appropriate time to take stock. I am pleased to introduce our distinguished panelists. We have Phil Bulger, Strategic Advisor to Delight, Heinrich Lochtiken, CF CEO of JLPS Ireland, Gary Fitzgerald, CEO of Stratus, Greg Burns, CFO of White Oak Aviation, and my colleague, Nal McNamara, Managing Director, DMS Structured Finance. Moving on to our first topic of our six points that we're seeking to discuss this afternoon, and probably the most fundamental issue to be addressed. How and when will public confidence be restored in air travel? May I go to you first on this, Phil, for your yes. thoughts on this? Thank you. Um, good afternoon. Um, this is the, the billions of dollar question, I guess, in the industry right now. I think in the very short run, uh, a vaccine or other therapeutic cure, which would be widely distributed and maybe matched with an instant test when you're getting on board an airplane, would greatly assist in rapidly restoring uh, public confidence in flying again. However, I don't see that uh, happening any time in the next uh, few months. I think if we take a quick look at what happened in the past, uh, there might be something uh, in there that would help put it in context. So after 9-11, recovery uh, in traffic took 12 months. After SARS, it took nine months. And after the great financial crisis, it actually took 20 months. Obviously, this particular pandemic and international lockdowns is somewhat more severe than any of those. So I think we are looking at uh, a couple of years before traffic comes back to where it was in 2019. But in the past, confidence has been restored reasonably quickly. People tend to have short memories and there will be a lot of pent up demand. Um, the question is, will, will fear of infection on an airplane remain high and how will travelers as assess that risk? I think a great deal of thought is going into this particular problem and uh, some action is beginning to be taken on it. Recently, uh, IATA had some anecdotal evidence from 14 of the larger airlines who didn't see passenger to passenger infections and this area of research is being pursued. IATA has also just issued uh, detailed recommendations on minimizing onboard uh, contact and airport risk. Um, several countries are beginning to discuss what they've called travel bubbles, for example, between China and South Korea and between Australia and New Zealand, where the uh, pandemic has, has been brought under a great deal of control. These travel bubbles, I think, uh, could be a, a uh, template and be extended to a, on a wider basis as, as these infections get under control in, in different countries. Um, some airlines obviously are looking at their business models and looking at the implications of lower seating densities, which uh, will be problematic uh, in terms of uh, break-even load factors. Airports are examining what they can do. But I think governments need to start coordinating and establishing protocols uh, that are countrywide or, or region-wide. And I know the EU is looking at this across the 28 countries trying to harmonize the rules. Otherwise, we're going to have a hodgepodge and it'll be quite difficult to figure out which country you can fly to and which you can't. There seems to have been an initial rebound amongst younger, more affluent travelers in China. And they're a less at risk population. And maybe travel stimulation measures will get those guys uh, on, on aircraft uh, sooner than the older, more at-risk population. Um, and vacation destinations, and I think all tourism infrastructure, will be working very hard to seek ways to generate revenues. So it's possible to get it moving again, 
And I'm sure the industry participants will leave no stone unturned to drive that recovery. I'll leave it there. Thank you, Phil. Um, and I think you have you've touched on some very interesting points there. One one item that has stood out to me was your reference to the biosecurity standards with reference to to airports and the controls that will need to be developed in that region to to support the industry, as distinct from the aircraft itself. Gary, given your background and your experience, how do you see events unfolding and what processes should be implemented to restore that confidence? Yeah, th thanks, uh, Frank. Um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting one because, frankly, no one's ever had this sort of level or length of experience with this sort of pandemic before. Uh, you know, in our view, you know, in the near term, after the virus is hopefully contained, you know, international travel may still be further constrained by, you know, economic uh, constraints or collapse. And, uh, and obviously some potentially still worried about the virus, as, as Phil has mentioned. Um, it seems clear that, you know, airlines and airports will have a joint mission to bring back customer confidence. Uh, so they'll need to invest in TR advertising campaigns, um, you know, to support a new way of, of traveling defined by social distancing and increased sanitation. And they'll probably also have to stimulate demand, creating new incentives for travelers, you know, like waiving change fees and, uh, you know, generally boosting public confidence for future bookings. Um, you know, but even once the demand is, is fully restored, the you know, we can we can see that the end-to-end -end experience of, of airport airline uh, passengers, you know, may have been changed forever. Uh, it's possible that you know social distancing will become a, a much longer-term future in our lives or feature in our lives. Um, you know, more effective queue management probably a good start. You know, some technology uh, could take center stage, like biometric e-gates and uh, you know airlines and airports you know, taking fairly big steps and redundancies, you know, I, I think the appeal of technologies that reduce the reliance on human interaction, you know, such as automation and robotics, uh, you know, it, it should should become stronger. But as, as we sit today, um, and not knowing, of course, where the future of this virus is headed, um, I, I think a big issue is, is, is probably affected by government restrictions more than public confidence today. Uh, I, I personally believe that individuals are mostly fairly happy to fly as, as long as they can see some basic sanitary steps being taken to address transmission risks. But the bigger issue really is, is for air travel or for air travel would be, you know, for governments, as, as Phil has said, to get aligned. Uh, you know, and many governments will take an inordinate amount of time to reopen their borders. Um, but by that time, hopefully travelers will be very keen to get moving again. Uh, albeit with with reduced uh, budgets. And, and Heinrich, with the proposed in isolation periods of two weeks, and and in that background, is that a primary um, curtailment that needs to be removed in order, firstly, to get people travelling, but also to restore the confidence? And what other items do you see that will get us flying again? Frank, I think certainly that needs to be the case. Can you imagine you want to go on vacation and you just arrive in Spain and you have to quarantine for two weeks and then go back after the vacation is over? So I, I don't think that will fly. I think there will be a lot of uh, try and error in that reopening. What I should say, what I think is going to happen is that this is, well, let me start with this. It's different from what we have seen before. It's a considerably bigger issue than, for example, September 11 or the financial crisis. And ultimately, I believe that the confidence will only be restored if there's a cure, then the vaccine. And on top of that, some level of assurance that the guy next uh, seat is not infecting me. And that does not only impact uh, the aircraft, it will also impact the airports. So everything that um, um, has been said before with regard to security controls, but also baggage, transportation to the airport that needs to be feeling safe again. And as I said, I think ultimately it needs a vaccine to get there. With regard to 
starting up again first. I would believe that seeding will not do it because there's no airline that can uh, lift, at least if uh, today's economics or yesterday's economics are um, relevant, on a seat and a load factor of 66%. So the idea of a middle seat being empty, I don't think that will fly. Even the little bit of restrictions of uh, um, walking around in the aircraft, I don't think that will ultimately do it. It might serve the purpose of getting some people back on the plane, but if that's going to be the role model forward, uh, the airline profitability will not be capable of sustaining this. So I would believe if it comes to opening, there needs to be some infrastructure measures necessary on the way to the airport, at the airport itself, to ensure social distancing. And then there needs to be um, a phased process as to how one could get back flying again. So the first um, that I would see um, opening is national travel. I'd say once the U.S. is over the hump, I would say that will come back relatively quickly. The second part is uh, the travel bubbles that were mentioned, um, where we have bilaterals between various countries that feel it to be safe to open the borders and international travel again. Then we'll probably have something like Schengen Zone coming back, so larger economic areas uh, that have uh, our passport arrangements amongst themselves. And then you have international travel coming back. What I also think is that there will be an age profile of travelers. So the younger will travel quicker than the older ones because they will probably feel more exposed. I also think that the uh, what I call business travel, that is non-essential. There might be essential business travel. For all of us in the leasing industry, I'll see us on airplanes relatively quickly again. But the non-essential uh, business travel, that's where a lot of the large airlines, especially international ones, make their money on shipping people to conferences, I think that will take quite some time to recover. So having said that, I think the process will be a little more cumbersome and slower than what we have seen before. And it's also depending a little bit on what the um, medical professions expect to be the second and the third wave, because I do not think it's going to be over. in fall, there might be a second wave of infections. And if we haven't gotten the cure by then, all that what we are talking about now is going to see potentially also some back again. Thank you, Heinrich. Um, yes, some of the points you raised there are extremely valid. Um, moving on to maybe the, the next um, item on our agenda, and um, Heinrich, you referenced there that the non-essential travel uh, being avoided even when we do come back flying regularly. Um, And I guess that leads in nicely to the second topic, which is the impact of COVID-19. Is it going to be uh, a temporary um, event or or will it have a a longer, more permanent impact uh, on on aviation and aviation finance? And with with that question, I'll pose it for you, Greg, in terms of your views on this. Yeah, thanks a lot, Frank. Um, listen, uh, I think uh, three months into this crisis, as the guys have said, we're pretty confident it's not going to be a V-shaped recovery. Uh, it's clearly a, a black swan event, and you know it has the potential to reshape our industry permanently. Um, where where I hear you know commentators saying that you know with the combination of the environmental uh, protection sort of wave. And the, the, the improved technology allowing people to sort of work from home, I and saying that this could permanently sort of reduce the demand for air travel. I don't fully buy into that. And I really think that like the underlying sort of demographics and the macroeconomic environment saying that you know there's that that sort of uh, growing middle class with growing disposable income will allow us eventually to sort of recover back to 2019 levels and beyond. The question, I guess, then is is around how long it's temporary. Like, so putting aside the, the hopefully imminent uh, vaccine next year, I see it in kind of a number of phases. You kind of have you have this liquidity stage and this fight for survival that airlines are in at the minute, uh, where they're they're really scrambling for liquidity, and this will continue. I see for the next couple of months, and there will be some casualties, and I expect there will be a fair few. Uh, restructurings both both for the airlines and for for the leasing community. Um, the sort of second but sort of linked phase is sort of around all of this right sizing that's happening, and this is happening for for the most part in the in the major uh, airlines. You know where they're making cancellation of orders, 
furloughing, laying off staff and all of this type of thing. And really that will lead, I think, you know, towards the end of this year, early next year to uh, the sort of final the implementation of the new right side strategy. And frankly, I think it's going to be a, a new position of sort of smaller fleets, uh, you know, fewer headcounts, smaller networks. Um, and I think the the airlines that, that survive should be leaner and well-placed uh, with fewer fewer competitors out there. So specifically in terms of timing, and this is not so much off the top of the head, but it's, it's the way I'm sort of thinking at the moment. You might see by the end of this year a recovery of 40, 40, 50%. Next year, assuming that we get a vaccine at some stage, by the end of 2021, maybe an 80% recovery. Uh, but it's that final 20% that's very difficult to see. Um, so really, really, I would be fairly optimistic. Uh, the shape of the industry may not be exactly or won't be exactly the way it is today in terms of the split and proportion of demand, discretionary uh, business. But I think any sort of reduction in, say, business travel will be replaced by other demand. And this is all contingent, uh, as Gary, I think, said, around the, the world economy recovering, which is obviously key for, for our sector. Thank you, Greg. That's that's quite interesting. Niall, would you have um, different views or do you share similar views to, to Greg on this matter? Thanks, Frank. Um, no, I think we're, we're quite aligned in terms of our views here. Um, certainly, you know, the, the question of whether this is a temporary or, or permanent impact is very dependent on the science. Um, if a vaccine is developed, or indeed, if we end up with a an effective treatment of COVID nineteen, that these are the main drivers as to how quickly this, this situation will will ease and ultimately pass. I would be quite hopeful that treatments will come first, and hopefully we'll get to a point where having COVID nineteen is something that you live with rather than it being something critical or ultimately terminal. Uh, the vaccines, I think, are going to be more complicated because. Unfortunately, viruses have uh, a tendency to mutate, and there are many mutations already of, of COVID-19. So I think that part will be challenging. Um, I'm sure ultimately a solution will be found, but that could take quite some time. So if we assume that we're going to be living with COVID-19 for, for, for a number of probably years, uh, then that temporary situation will have to be managed by the industry. And I think it's quite clear, we've already seen a lot of airlines look at their fleet. Uh, we've seen cancellations or deferral of orders with the OEMs. And clearly airlines are planning for a gradual uh, improvement, but in the short term, they have to resize their fleets, uh, replan the, the business model they operate to make sure that they can survive during this period. Um, but ultimately, I think we are going to see a gradual uh, return to normality. Something I expect we will definitely see is that there will be different countries uh, treated differently in terms of, of, of international travel. Um, I expect that countries that have managed the pandemic well and have good solutions and low numbers will open up their borders. And unfortunately, then there may be many countries which have a major problem and international travel to those countries will be restricted. So that, that is something we expect to see uh, over the coming months. Um, but ultimately, I expect things will get to uh, some degree of normality. And ultimately, I think the, the impact will be temporary, but it temporary can be take quite a long time. Thank you, Nile. That, that, that is quite, inter quite interesting. And, and I think history also shows us that events like this can lead um, not necessarily to fundamental change, but the acceleration of the change that's undergoing within the industry as well. And I think that will be the outcome of, of and the impact of COVID-19. Um, we have now moved on to item number three, um, which is the topic is, can airlines repair their balance sheets? Which is a very, very interesting uh, topic. Phil, could you give us your expert opinion? Uh, is this possible and how will they do it? Thanks, thanks, Frank. Um, look, the answer is in, in relation to the survivors, which is an important uh, qualification. 
The answer is yes, but it's going to take time. Uh, one estimate I saw recently from a very large uh, consulting company said to get back to 2019 levels of profitability will take until 2025, and it would take until 2030 to pay down the debt burdens they're currently amassing. And if you look every day, the airlines are borrowing prodigiously. Banks, bond markets, governments, they're going to their credit card companies. And in the last couple of days, I saw some loyalty program uh, selling uh, where the airline is, is, is essentially pre taking prepayments of, of future obligations. And, you know, we've seen the numbers in the press. It, it seems like it's 10 billion here and 10 billion there, which are enormous burdens for airlines to take on. Uh, I think the data is still very scarce on new deal pricing, but on existing, uh, existing issuances, I think the trading ranges you can see in the, in the press are either double or triple their issue prices. And they're likely to stay there uh, for the foreseeable future because investors who thought risks had all but disappeared from their pricing models have uh, had a rude awakening in the, in, in the past two months. So they're going to demand a higher price for, for any lending that they do. Um, I did say at the beginning, the survivors, because I do think uh, we're, we're in for a fundamental shift, at least for the next four or five years. And that is going to cause uh, quite a number of uh, airline bankruptcies, uh, which uh, maybe that's what's required, the survival of the fittest uh, um, has, has been around in the industry for a long time. Um, and maybe we go back to that in the short run. I think uh, if we get back to 2019 travel levels, there then will be scope for, for, for some debt re repricing. Uh, I think cash flow will be redirected from, from CapEx to debt. And we're seeing the slashing of uh, CapEx right now, left, right, and center which probably falls mostly on the OEMs, uh, both of whom have their difficulties. And uh, with so many orders being canceled, I think the last number I saw was 500 in, in April uh, and more to come. I think we'll, we'll see a permanent reduction in, in uh, OEM output. And uh, that, that restriction in output plus, I guess, uh, improved yields because of low fuel prices, shrunken uh, uh, world fleet will help drive some profitability as soon as the passenger numbers get back to where we think they will. And that should then allow airlines to perhaps uh, accelerate repayment of debt and get back to healthy balance sheets that they had in 2018, 2019. Thank you, Phil. Just one further question on that for you is just, and we will be addressing the topic shortly, but the role of government support in the, the repairing of, of airline balance sheets, um, you would anticipate that that will be important? Um, well, you, sorry, Frank, if you look at what's happening right now in the US and in Europe, uh, governments have opened the purses. And I think... Uh, we'll see a change in how they run their businesses as a result of that, because certainly in Europe, there are going to be strings attached to that uh, bailout. And uh, I guess Michael O'Leary will be in court for the next few years fighting it. Yes, indeed. Gary, um, your views on, on, on the airlines repairing their balance sheet and continuing to have liquidity in the current environment? Yeah, I hadn't heard the 2030 uh, to clear the debt burden before, uh, but Phil's comment there was was quite quite striking. Uh, look, you know, from our perspective, you know, clearly airlines they're a high revenue generating industry with enormous and relatively fixed uh, equipment and fuel charges, and very low profitability. So they're just not geared to sustain any form of revenue hit at all. So you know, some hopefully will and have to repair their balance sheets, but not for an extremely long time. And as, as Phil says, you know, 2030 might be the real time frame we're talking about here. But just, just to put it into perspective, you know, IATA reported last year total revenues of all of their, you know, airlines 
combined to nearly $900 billion uh, 2019, and it's likely to be halved this year, uh, and maybe worse. Um, profits last year about $35 billion. Um, and, you know, as, as Phil said, you know, it'll, it'll take years. Um, you know, most airlines and, and U.S. carriers in particular, they're dealing with this point of the crisis by adding absolute mountains of debt to their balance sheets. I mean, they're building war chests just to outlive their competitors, which is a, a logical reaction given all the previous crisis, you know, that they've lived through. You know, repairing the balance sheets will, as we said, take many years, but they, they have to. Otherwise, they either won't survive in the long run. Or they'll never be able to add substantial amounts of debt or continuing, you know, to, to, to make essential fleet renewals, you know. And, and the crisis has proven that, you know, in the absence of government support, very few airlines are, are able to withstand, you know, such prolonged hits to revenues. Um, to, you know, cost can only be cut so far. Um, so strong and assured capital commitments are, are really essential for these airlines, um, as, you know, as is the need to be over-reliant on debt. You know, I know that's easy for us to say today, but... You know, in the, lo- in the long term, all airlines, they know that they need to improve their debt to equity ratios and they need to improve the liquidity ratios. And it's, it's obviously headed in the wrong direction today. Thank you, Gary. That was, that was very clear. Item number four, the, our topic is the lesser management of airline lease waiver requests. What options do, do they have? And I know there has been probably a, a first wave of those um, in terms of lease rentals being deferred. Um, Heinrich, what options do the lessors have in, in this environment? I would say, um, you see me smiling, not as many as one would have had over the last 25, 30 years. But I also think there's probably less uh, to gain. So if I compare these restructuring requests um, was that what we have seen in the industry before? I think I can say that probably in the past, deals were structured differently. There was more secure deposits. There was uh, more maintenance reserves. There was maybe even, uh, even if I adjusted for interest rate, the higher uh, lease rate. So if an airline comes now and say, I need to have uh, concessions, given that we went into this with relatively what I call skinny deals, mm-hmm. there's not that much to take anymore. Obviously, what airlines will look at if they have to, let's say, go through bankruptcies and have to uh, look at um, expenses, they will look at upcoming maintenance events. And they might, if it comes to that, select aircraft one over the other with regard to what aircraft have maintenance events and in the near term and which one don't. Um, but generally speaking, I think not, not a lot has really, really changed, except that the optionality for the source, given the magnitude of the event, has changed. All the other crises were either very short-term, as uh, Phil and uh, Greg have said, um, or they were kind of regionally um, uh, concentrated, like SARS. Um, September 11th was reasonably short-term. So we had V-shaped recoveries, and uh, three months rent deferral, six months rent deferral, was a three months to six months uh, catch-up. MPV neutral structured for the good airline, that was a possibility. I think what we will see today in this crisis that we'll probably have waves of restructuring less coming. So I think from what um, we're seeing, there is a typical three months and maybe six months uh, with catch up relatively quickly. But the question on whether that's enough or not. As a Lassore, you would sit there and you would do the same thing you have done 20 years ago. You would effectively take uh, your airline fleet and those that come with the request and uh, create two buckets. You look at the survivors and those that you think that might not survive. You would historically treat them almost alike with regard to having people on the ground, kicking the tires of the aircraft, making sure that the aircraft are okay, uh, copying records or taking the records, and if push comes to shove, take the aircraft out. All that today, you would try to do, but given that the travel restrictions are there, it's a little bit more difficult to organize. But I think what Lesores have to face is a situation where the optionality around what you can do with the asset is not as great as in the past. So after SARS and problems in Southeast Asia, you could take an aircraft and employ it somewhere else. Today, with uh, the vast majority of the uh, fleet being grounded, it's very difficult as a resort to take an aircraft back because you would know that you have to put it into storage and you have to kind of wait for the market to recover to release it again. So I think it will be every resource interest 
and that makes this process, or shall I say, interesting, uh, to keep the aircraft with the airline. And therefore, the airline might have a bit more leverage than they would have had in the past, because the optionality that the Lusor had was taking the aircraft out and saying, I'm going to go somewhere else, that is somewhat restricted and curtailed. On the other hand side, airlines that will come out of this will be stronger. Um, so I think if it's a restructuring for the right airline, you've been seen as a sort of help to the right airline, that kind of positions the company nicely for additional business in the future. Thank you, Heinrich. That's about um, it from me. Yes, that's a very comprehensive um, response and, and insight. Niall, Phil, would you have something uh, additional to to add to Heinrich's response? Yeah, if I could just mention, um, certainly among our client base, you know, we, we've all seen lessors take the approach of trying to work with airlines, uh, try to give them that three or six month deferral period, which is which is necessary. Um, but in terms of their options, I mean, probably the worst option at the moment would be to have your aircraft trapped within a bankrupt airline where it takes a, a protracted period to, to either get your aircraft back or indeed to get any of the money that's due to you back. Uh, but at the moment, the second worst option is probably having your aircraft returned. Because there is no market at the moment. There is no alternative places where you can move the aircraft and find a new lessee. Um, this is a global pandemic. Uh, it's, it's not going to change quickly from that situation. So the best situation at the moment is for the lessors to work with the airlines. Um, hopefully, government interventions will start to see cash flow come through those airlines and back to the lessors as, as we progress. Um, and also, you know, the airlines there will be restructuring required. Uh, and within that context, um, some leases and some aircraft will be retained and some will be returned. So I think I think lessors are taking for the moment the the prudent option, which is work with the airline, and see how this pans out over the next uh, six twelve months. Thank you, Thanks. Um, I, I think Heinrich uh, hit all the nails on the head uh, in terms of who's between a rock and a hard place here. What the airlines are and the lessors are to some extent. Um, the lessors are anxious and eager to support their airline clients, but they can't support them all. Um, so at some point, they'll be picking winners and losers. At that point is probably after the initial wave of waivers uh, has been worked through. Um, on the other side, the levers the uh, lessors have uh, are few and far between, partly because there's no flying or very, very little flying. Uh, one of the uh, more interesting uh, things we've seen in the last few days is that lessors are taking equity instead of rents. And, that, and this was in the case specifically specifically of uh, Norwegian. I have not seen that in 40 years uh, of being in the industry. Uh, and that's an interesting development. I'm not sure whether it's good or bad, but uh, it's certainly interesting Um all the other usual levers, power by the hour, you know, uh, offsetting uh, maintenance reserves, no maintenance reserve payouts, all that kind of stuff is 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 uh, everyday bread and butter for for the lessors. Um, termination repossession is is a very difficult option right now because you can't get your technical people on the ground, you can't get your pilots in there to take the airplanes back. Um, because of all this, the, the uh, borders are closed and 14-day um, lockdowns are, are in, in place in many, many jurisdictions. So that's a, a, an unusual and a very unwelcome uh, addition to the problems that we have in dealing with uh, uh, defaulting less, lessees. Um, and if there are a lot of bankruptcies, it, it's going to exa exacerbate that problem. But otherwise, I think uh, Heinrich did cover all the, the, the points on, on this question. Thank you, Phil. Yes, and, and in the current environment, the options are, are clearly limited. Um, but there is always the risk of, of default and, and repossession, which has to be considered. 
Moving on to a topic we uh, touched briefly on uh, previously was the government's uh, support for airlines in di different jurisdictions. Um, in advance of the call, I was looking at an ISCA report which referenced um, committed uh, state aid in the region of 114 billion US dollars. Um, this is obviously jurisdictional specific and is not being given in every country. Um, so the answer to the question is probably somewhat self-evident, but it would be interesting to see how, how it does impact this different types of support in different jurisdictions uh, for airlines and their competitors. And obviously we have heard recent nice noises about some airlines um, complaining bitterly about what's being provided to competitors. Gary, would you like to take this one initially? Yeah, sure, uh, Frank. And yeah, I guess, again, to put it into context, you know, we, we talked about, you know, last year revenues of a, just under $900 billion across the board for airlines. Um, so if that figure of $115 billion, which is pretty much in line with what we're thinking, is, is correct, it's, it's still not, not a huge amount compared to the overall annual revenues of, of airlines. But still, it's, 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 it's certainly welcome for a lot of airlines at this time. Uh, you know, and the help that airline, that governments are giving to airlines is, you know, basically any um, monetarily quantified relief measures, you know, such as deferrals of taxes, you know, deferring operating charges for airports, uh, you know, state-backed commercial loans, uh, potentially nationalization of the airlines we've seen in Italy. Um, and, you know, I'd, over the last week, you know, we've seen the tally grow by, by another 16 billion. So it, it is it is fast becoming a uh, high on the agenda of many governments. Um, as the crisis sort of evolves, we're actually a little worried that governments might lose a bit of focus on the airlines because, you know, the crisis is starting to encompass a lot more than just the airline industry, of course. Um, but, but clearly airlines were, were the kind of first hit and um, probably the hardest hit for, for, for now. Um, I mean, we've seen at least half of the world's 20 largest airlines re receiving some, some form of government support. Um, and a whole bunch of European carriers last week got got, a, got fairly hefty hefty support, um, you know. But but as the, as the big guys, you know, get this respite, you know, smaller competitors are, are really left sitting on you know, on the ledge. Um, you know, for instance, like last week, you know, in France, we saw the, the airlines in the overseas territories basically insisting on the same sort of level of support that Air France got. You know, Switzerland, you know, very fair country, but they've also left the EasyJet subsidiary out of out of their support package and, and even Spain, you know, we've only really seen packages supplied to Iberia and Welling, which is obviously the largest homegrown airlines, but, but there's at least 10 other airlines there that have applied. Uh, and, you know, in Asia, we see the situation is, is generally the same. You know, flag carriers are getting promises of assistance and, and ind independent carriers, and especially the LCCs are being left to their own devices, really. Um, and doing, doing this without distorting competition is, is frankly impossible. Um, but it, it's also maybe the last thing in most governments' minds uh, at the moment, as in competition. Um, you know, despite very vocal protests from the likes of Ryanair, as you've mentioned, um, but it's very noticeable that, say, in the US, the, the Airlines for America, which is an enormous trade association, they, they've suddenly abandoned all discussion or, or notion of anti-competition uh, uh, discussion, so at, at least for now. You know, we do predict that government support might wear thin uh, sooner rather than later, um, not only because governments themselves may run out of resource, but, but airlines, you know, they're going to use taxpayer support to the letter of the law. And in the U.S. in particular, you know, we're, we're, we're expecting on, on October the 1st, when, when basically the limits on staff retention expire uh, on, on the airlines, it, it's, it's likely to emerge as probably the worst day in, in, in U.S. airline labor history, um, as, as so many people are likely to get laid off, you know. So it's a very, this is a very interesting and deep topic. And obviously, some airlines are, are winners and, and some are losers. But in the long run, it's, it's, it's not so clear if you're really on the winning side, if you do have a big government sitting behind you and, and now suddenly part of your, of your board, you know. But uh, I'd welcome anybody else's views on, on this uh, topic. Yes, Greg, would you like to um, revise your views on this item? Yeah, thanks, Frank. Yeah, no, I'd agree with I'd agree with the vast majority of what Gary has said there. Like, you know, 
it cannot be done without the sordid competition. Having having said that, where we've where we've come from initially with antitrust and European competition law, it, it was imperfect as well. But we're in a totally different place now altogether. Like the way I see it is, you know, it has been pure pure impulsive. You know, it had to be impulsive and it had to be speedy. Um, this crisis hit like a bolt, uh, and revenues dropped, you know, off a cliff completely. So, especially with the with the larger airlines, you know, they were hemorrhaging so much cash daily that you really had the governments had to sacrifice the proper joined up thinking and forward looking planning to essentially save what they they see as systemic um, and strategically important uh, important airlines for them. Um, but on the flip side, then I think you know the the covenants and the restrictions that come with all of these bailouts are not without their pain as well. And I think I think the, air, the airlines that are in better shape from a liquidity perspective are thinking very carefully, uh, certainly in Europe, uh, about the, the depth of, of bailout that they, that they want to accept where it's been offered. Um, I think the unfortunate thing, but probably just the reality, is that with this uh, sort of unstructured targeting of, of bailout, you're going to have a, a lot of sort of poorer run or managed airlines that might survive. And on the flip side, you're going to have, you know, well-run airlines that are are, are going to probably uh, be challenged, restructured, or, or go under. So uh agree completely with what Gary's saying. It's, 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 it's hard to see uh, the structure within all of these bailouts, but at the same time, uh, there's probably going to be plenty of political and uh, legal fallout from, from this in, in the short term. Yeah, that's. I think, I think there's not many on the panel that would disagree with the, with that analysis. Um, I thought it was interesting, Gary. You made one reference to whether the governments uh, com- complete on the uh, the commitments that are being made with what will happen in the broader e- economy, and it's not a, an item on our, our list today. Um, but that is a big factor in terms of the recovery of the airlines. It's going to be the, the overall global economy uh, turnaround and how quickly we can get back to normality and for business to recover and for feeds through to the business traveler traveling and the leisure traveler and and so on in terms of the um the final item and, and we could continue this conversation um all evening I'm, I'm it's very very informative um and, and very interesting to, to hear your expert views if we were and maybe to go through the panel individually um what supports, what solutions are available to the industry, either from a uh, government support or within the industry? What what actions can be made to um, help the airlines and ultimately the aviation finance industry to to weather the storm and come through um, to the other side? Uh, and maybe I'll ask you, Heinrich, to to lead off. All right, thanks, Frank. It's kind of an interesting, difficult one. So I think we all have seen the only thing that would come to me mind. I mean, we have the government stepping in already and they will support, as uh, everyone else has said, they will support some airlines, but maybe not others. And we'll have winners emerging. And I have no doubt that those winners will be stronger um, after the crisis than they will before the crisis. I also think um, that the airline industry will recover. So what we'll need um, and the matter is how long will it take? So what we'll need is a bit of uh, a bridge into this. So right now we have government support in form of uh, direct equity uh, investments or uh, short-term loans. But I think the next thing that the government should look at, and I believe there's a bit of a revival in the ECA market, or the European Credit Export Agency market, the, the long-term debt financing for aircraft is not non-existent at this point in time. So if governments can stimulate that um, supply in providing guarantees, and it can be done through XM ECAs, I think that would uh, help a great deal. They might need to relax some of the standards because in the past it has been awfully difficult if you were kind of not very long established or you didn't have the right asset, then it would be awfully difficult to get that type of financing. But that would be one way of bringing more liquidity uh, for longer-term uh, capital that is sensibly priced uh, to the market. That That is an interesting um, and something that was 
quite a thing in its time. And yeah, I, I think it's a good suggestion and hopefully something that will be followed through on. Greg, would you like to make a proposal that you would like to see put in place? Yeah, I think I think from 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 existing lessors with existing exposure, we've touched on that fully in terms of what they can do to support uh, to support the, the airlines. Um, I also would mention that there's you know there's still a lot of uh, investors out there who maybe were sitting on the sidelines who hadn't invested, and so I think there is a fair bit of money out there to still invest in the in the market to support lessors and support and to support airlines with with liquidity. So like. From our perspective, from, uh, from White Oak's perspective, we're not only are we looking at the sort of uh, the previously deemed great credits and potential sale lease back opportunities and where you can support there, but there is still a lot of a good number of, of smaller airlines, very well run airlines that you know perhaps we're playing in the niche markets, and you know these these airlines have you know not tried to grow too fast too quickly over the last decade or two. They have a small fleet. They have a number of unencumbered aircraft, and you know they're well placed and just need that liquidity bump to push them for the next you know, nine, twelve months. So I think there's a there's a lot of things where new investors into the market can support um, existing airlines and lessors as well. So we would see that as uh, one potential uh, inroad to support. Um, Greg, I just want to also jump in from my side. Um, you know, again, just looking at very ballpark figures, if you look at the full value of, of all aircraft uh, flying around today, it's, it's probably 750 to $800 billion worth of metal uh, with, with the, the majors. Um, we, we all know about half of that is, an, is already on operating leases and owned by lessors or investors. And the balance is, is split you know, between unencumbered or, or financed and, uh, and unencumbered. So, uh, sorry, encumbered slash financed and unencumbered. So basically it leaves about probably 150 to two to 20 billion worth of aircraft equity in effect sitting on airlines balance sheets. And, and that for me seems to be a fairly obvious area that airlines can pull the ripcord and, and start selling the, the silver um, you know, two investors, as you said, there's a whole bunch of, of, of lessors and, and other investors who, who are happy to take metal risk. Um, so this for me, you know, if you've extinguished all of your government support sort of channels, you, you know, you, you, you've, you've managed to tap into Heinrich's um, uh, ECA uh, sort of uh, Exim support, which, which is absolutely essential. I totally agree with that. But I think the, the, the next thing on the list has to be what's on your balance sheet and, and try and liquidate those aircraft. Um, and, and put, put everything on on, on up lease uh, or as much as you can. Uh, you know, again, airlines are in survival mode, which is an incredibly unfortunate situation given, you know, this is the perfect storm that's hit them. Um, but, you know, they need to use every tool in their artillery to, to survive this. And, and that surely must be one of the one of the big ones on the agenda. Uh, Phil, I, I don't know if you have any further views on that or if... Yep. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think there's actually a bit of a bigger picture here because what we've seen in the last two months is a rapid withdrawal inside national boundaries. And yet airlines are amongst the most global of businesses. And we have an enormous impact on world economies, on travel and tourism and on job creation. So I think it'd be really good to see some high level governmental responses to how aviation emerges from the crisis, uh, you know, maybe using ICAO but they need to, the, the major players need to kind of galvanize the establishment of a 21st century response. Um, otherwise, we're going to have a very, very choppy, uh, disorienting response to, to the emergence from, from the crisis. Um, the erection of, of, of national boundaries has surprised me looking at Europe um, that they came up so quickly and so definitively. Uh, I thought there was a EU, and there really isn't. There's 28 individual countries here all protecting themselves. So I think they need to, to tackle that um, in some kind of high-level way. And uh, I guess I, I agree with Gary's uh, point on uh, you know the 1st of October. We're going to see huge layoffs in the U.S. I think the good side, side of this is if there are bankruptcies and restructurings, you know, airlines will get recapitalized. 
and they'll retool their fleets. Uh, OEMs will right-size their production, which I think the whole industry has been uh, banging on about for five or maybe 10 years at this point. So, you know, out of this crisis will will, will emerge a leaner, uh, more hungry uh, aviation industry, better aligned in terms of resources to what's needed. Um, but I do think some uh, coordination at the very top is required, and we're not seeing that yet. Thank you, Phil. Um, yeah, Niall, I'm yes. sure you've got a number of ideas. Absolutely, and I, I wouldn't disagree with anything that's been said so far. Um, I, among our own aviation clients, and particularly our, our aviation fund clients, there is certainly liquidity available for, for transactions, whether they be sale and leasebacks or whether they be portfolio sales. Um, so, you know, within DMS, we are certainly uh, trying to support uh, those clients. And um, the fact that we have that multi-jurisdictional uh, offering is very helpful because uh, quite often these assets need to be housed within SPVs in different jurisdictions. Um, something we expect to see more of is, is distressed debt and a particularly distressed aviation debt as, as this progresses. And um, we actually have uh, a particular product to deal with that scenario. And uh, finally, you know, within, within the group, we have a well-experienced uh, management team, uh, a lot of, of aviation knowledge and, and history there, which our clients have been able to, to leverage off and, and help them to navigate through the, the perils of the current situation. Uh, and we expect that to continue and, and hopefully help them through to the other side. Thank you, Noel, and I think that's a that's an important point. Um, this this crisis will bring opportunities, and <clears throat> no doubt all the participants on, on on this call in the panel and and people that will be joining will will identify some of those opportunities, um, and develop their business by so doing. Um, as as a wrap up, uh, we have we have totally run over in terms of time, and uh, we have received a number of questions, um, which. I, uh, which we can address offline. Um, I would firstly like to thank all the participants. I have found this really interesting um, and it's a pity we didn't have more time. And and secondly, more importantly, it's a pity we couldn't do this in, in person given the, the current restrictions. Um, being uh, someone that has been in the industry for quite some time now, um, I love aviation. I love um, the opportunities it has given the world, the breaking down of borders, the travel, um, the, the career um, that it has given me. I think we're all committed to contributing to the, the return of this industry. So, um, and it will return because its benefits economically and socially are, are, are just huge. So um, with that, I will bring the uh, webinar to, to a close. And should you have, again, just to remind everyone, should you have specific questions, Please submit them and we will address them offline. Thank you very much.